turn to John chapter 13. No surprises there. Making our way through the Gospel of John. Oh, you want me to move that off to the side? Thanks, Wayne. I thought it covered my nose well <laughs> after last week. By the way, it's amazing what the right medication will do. But John chapter 13, verse 1, really sets the stage for what is happening in this upper room discourse. You'll remember that John chapter 13 through to the end of John chapter 16, Jesus is in the intimate setting of the upper room. Notice verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover... Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus' public ministry is all done. It's all wrapped up. He is now cloistered in this upper room with his closest companions, the twelve. Selected, trained, and identified as apostles, sent ones. However, in approximately 8, 12 to 18 hours, Jesus' earthly life would come to an end. He would take his last breath. He would die. Over the past four weeks, we've been looking at the first 20 verses of John chapter 13. And we've identified four features of this to-the-end type love that he had for those that were closest to him. It's a love that overcomes deterrence, displays itself, is patient, and seeks to empower others, which meant in, in this context that Jesus was preparing his disciples for his departure. And that's the kind of love that God has for you and for me. Jesus loves me, this I know, and he loves you too. This morning we want to continue our study of John chapter 13 by focusing on verses 21 through 30. In these verses, the individual who will betray Jesus is both exposed and then explained. Now, I have to admit that I'm approaching these verses this morning with a little bit of trepidation. Not in the sense of fear. I, not because I don't believe them or don't understand them. But because I, I don't want to present the betrayer as something that he's not. How many of you are aware or familiar or been exposed to um, that old book called Lord of the Flies. Remember that? Is that still on the curriculum nowadays? Anyway, I studied it in high school and that's the book that came to mind as I read these verses. John chapter 13, verses 21 to 30. The book, Lord of the Flies, begins with a plane crash. A plane full of British schoolboys. 
The pilot of the plane is killed, but many of the boys survive the crash and find themselves on a deserted and uninhabited island. They are alone, without any kind of adult supervision. One of the main characters in the story is a boy that the others referred to or nicknamed Piggy. And that's not an endearing term. In fact, I would like to suggest that it's a, it's a put down. And as I'm sure you can well imagine, Piggy is a pudgy, asthmatic boy with glasses. An easy target for schoolyard bullies. The story tells of how these unsupervised group of British schoolboys survived this ordeal. And in the end, how Piggy loses his life. One summary of the book stated, the main message of the Lord of the Flies is conflict between the human impulse towards savagery. And with my theological mind, I would interpret that as human depravity. And the rules of civility, which are designed to contain and minimize it. It is for that reason. The human impulse towards savagery, our human depravity, that I want us to approach these verses this morning with a magnifying glass in one hand and a mirror in the other. Remember how Jesus, what he said when he was responding to that to the accusers who brought to him that woman who was caught in adultery? He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And certainly we're all called to hold one another accountable, pleading with sinners to, to repent and be reconciled to God. It's part of our responsibilities as brothers and sisters in Christ but we can never lose sight of our own depravity in the process. Can you hear the exasperation in the voice of the Old Testament prophet's declaration? The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I know as believers we have new hearts as we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and are trusting him alone for our salvation, another Old Testament prophet offers God's promise. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. Some of us. In fact, probably most of us in this worship center this morning have received that new heart. But I was reminded this week of the lingering deceitfulness of my own heart. When reading Kent Hughes' book, 
Disciplines of a Godly Man. He writes, It is sinfully natural to falsely suppose we are rising above our condition, a delusion which testifies to our very depravity. So as we study the exposure and explanation of this tragic character attached to the life of Jesus, rather than getting puffed up in our own piety, let's be mindful of our own reality, the lingering deceitfulness of our own hearts, a delusion which testifies to our very depravity. Granted, we may never be a Judas, a son of Simon Iscariot, but we all have that potential within us. So let's agree not to treat Judas as those British schoolboys treated Piggy. Rather, let's read these verses that expose and explain Jesus' betrayer with a magnifying glass in one hand. Sure, paying attention to all the details and a mirror in the other, always conscious of our own depravity and the potential of the evil that resides within us all. Maybe with this attitude, there, except by the grace of God, goes me. If that is, a, if that is truly our approach, I'm confident that there is much to learn from the life of this tragic individual. The one whom Jesus had said it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. With that extended introduction, please stand with me for the reading from God's Word. John chapter 13, begin, begin reading at verse 12 and read down to the end of verse 30. So when he, that is Jesus, washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then the Lord and, te and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did for to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that scripture may be fulfilled he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray me. 
The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one he was speaking which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now no one, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we've just read from your word. This book that we hold in our hands is an expression of your love for us, a final disclosure of your self-revelation, your plans and your purposes, your person, and also a revelation of who we are from your perspective. Thank you for this book, the Bible, a collection of scriptures, inspired, preserved, infallible, inerrant, and sufficient. We have all that we need to live our lives in a way that will please you and glorify your wonderful name. Forgive us when we do not take full advantage of this precious resource for avoiding it, dismissing it, or even defying it at times. As we approach this specific text this morning, may we be reminded of the potential of our own sinfulness. Keep us from self-deception, from thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. May this story of Jesus' betrayer become a mirror that reveals things about us. Enable us not to walk away and forget what we've seen, but rather may we May what we see prepare us for a significant celebration as we participate together at the Lord's Supper. Thank you for your grace, often taken for granted, but without which we would never survive as your ambassadors in this less than perfect world, full of less than perfect people, surrounded by less than perfect circumstances. Teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. You can run, but you can't hide. That quote was apparently first spoken by a heavyweight champion, Joe Lewis, just prior to a 1946 rematch victory 
over the light, lighter, faster Billy Kahn. Billy you can run, but you can't hide. I titled the message this morning, I don't know whether you noticed it on your sheet, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, exposed and explained. The first part of that title comes from the end of verse 26. Did you notice it? So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now my NASB translation of the Bible has the son in italics font, which means that those words do not represent a Greek word in the original. So the original recipients of John's Gospel would have read just this. He took and gave it to Judas of Simon Iscariot, and they would immediately know that he was talking about the son of Simon from a place called Iscariot. That was the geographic location. They would know that intuitively. But I think the translators, by inserting the son, is helpful. And perhaps an important insertion for you and I. As I read these verses earlier this week, that insertion caught my attention. And I could not help but be reminded that Judas was someone's son, someone's brother someone's grandson, perhaps someone's uncle, a cousin. Without it, I may have missed including Jesus as part of a family constellation, a family network. You see, it helps to, to humanize him rather than to demonize him. Judas was a son with a mom and dad, probably a brother, potentially someone's future husband, maybe someday even a dad. The point is, he's not all that unlike you and I. A so-called follower of Jesus, trying to make his way through the challenges and opportunities of life with all its thrilling successes and frustrating setbacks. A magnifying glass in one hand and a mirror in the other. Let's not lose sight of ourselves as we investigate Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. I've labeled the first verses first package of verses, verse 21 to 26, exposing the betrayer. In these verses, Jesus exposed Judas as the betrayer. And Jesus' exposure takes place on three different levels, nonverbal, verbal, and then a specific identification. Look at verse 21. When Jesus had said this, said what? 
we have to go back up to verse 18, right? I will not leave you as orphans. Whoops. Not chapter 14. Chapter 13. I, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the Spirit may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I sent receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Remember from last week? Jesus is preparing these disciples for his departure by providing some assurances as difficult as it was going to get, more difficult than they could ever imagine while sitting in that upper room on that fateful night. Jesus wanted them to know that it's all going to unfold according to plan, just as it was predicted 500, 600 years earlier by an Old Testament prophet. And their mission would remain unaltered, they were still the sent ones. When Jesus had said that, he became troubled in spirit. When our oldest grandson stands stiff, crosses his arms, bows his head, and gets that angry look on his face, we know something's wrong. He hasn't said a thing, but everybody knows Jonah's not happy. That's nonverbal communication. Nonverbal communication includes things like facial expressions, gestures, body language, posture, eye contact. Social sciences, scientists claim that over 70% of all communication is nonverbal. And that's, that number is on the low side. That's the lowest number I could find. It's probably up around 80, 85%. Jesus exposed Judas as the betrayer nonverbally. Remember back in John chapter 11? Jesus has arrived. At his, fr his friend has died four days earlier in the town of Bethany. Mary has come out to meet Jesus along with a crowd of Jewish leaders who've made their way out from Jerusalem to, to comfort Martha and Mary. Jesus' reaction is reported in verse 30, 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Once again, here in John chapter 13, Jesus has his funeral face on. The twelve who spent the past two and a half years living in close proximity with Jesus would be able to detect his troubled spirit. Jesus, in his humanity, was grieving the losses that would soon be realized as a result of this pending betrayal. And not just non-verbally. Jesus exposed Judas as the betrayer verbally as well. Did you notice Jesus 
immediate disclosure in verse 21. He didn't sulk or pout for a day. He didn't even wait for his disciples to inquire about his troubled spirit or his state of mind. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. He verbalized what was troubling him. It's a sobering, somber moment. Truly, truly. This was not something that was up for debate. This was something that they needed to take seriously. How would you respond? Look at verse 22. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. In verse 23, the disciples continued amongst themselves. Peter catches John's attention. Here, self-identified as the one whom Jesus loved. Before we jump to conclusions, let me just remind you, or at least point back to verse 1 again of John chapter 13, where Jesus is said to, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The Apostle John, perhaps because of his personality, found that particular comment something to, to anchor his soul to. He wasn't claiming some kind of special relationship with Jesus, but it was a comment that he never ever forgot. In fact, he again mentions it in chapter 19, verse 26, chapter 20, verse 2, chapter 21, verse 7, chapter 21, verse 20 again. He never forgot of Jesus' love for him. What a great way for you and I to see ourselves. The ones whom Jesus loved. Once Peter caught John's attention, notice verse 24. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said, said to him, tell us, tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. He, leaning back on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Can you imagine that moment? This has to have been a more private exchange. I just can't imagine Peter sitting there if he had overheard this conversation. Remember what he does just a few hours later in the garden when Jesus is betrayed? John chapter 18, verse 10 reports, Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave 
and cut off his right ear. If Peter had overheard this exchange, I think Judas would have lost more than a right ear. But the disciple whom Jesus loved had a front row seat. Jesus exposed Jesus, Judas as the betrayer with a specific identification. Perhaps Judas was not privy to the comment that preceded Jesus reaching out and actually dipping that morsel into the, and then placing it in his hand. But looking into those eyes, can you imagine what Judas would have experienced? Exposed. Jesus' piercing eyes, gazing into his very soul. Or maybe it was the lack of eye contact. Maybe Jesus avoided his eyes. And that would communicate the same message. Judas knows he knows. He knows I'm the one who will hand him over. I am the betrayer who has been speaking about all these times that he's predicted it would happen. As I studied this passage this past week and read Jesus' verbal exposure here in verse 26, I could not think of how easy it would have been for Jesus to expand that exposure. Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The rest of you will desert me. And one of you will deny me. Not once, not twice, but on three separate occasions within the next 12 to 18 hours. You see, None of this caught Jesus by, by surprise, and neither do any of our failures, past, present, or even future. Jesus came and claimed to be the light of the world. He exposes us. In John chapter 1, verse 9, right at the very beginning of the gospel, John wrote, there was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. John chapter 8, verse 12, then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John chapter 9, verse 5, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. John chapter 12, verse 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Allow Jesus to expose the sin in your life. Come to the light. Love the light. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
the psalmist declares. The word of God exposes sin in your life and in mine. Psalm 139 celebrates God's omniscience in verses 1 through 6. God's omnipresence in verses 7 through 12. God's omnipotence in verses 13 to 16. Then the psalm ends with a prayer. Asking God to examine his soul. This all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present God. Examine my soul. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. Literally, any way of pain. Self-destructive behavior or things that would hurt other people. And lead me in the everlasting way. By making that prayer, our prayer, God will expose the sin in our lives. You still have that magnifying glass in one hand and the mirror in the other? Jesus exposed his betrayer non-verbally, verbally, and with a specific identification. But really, how was that possible? Right there among the twelve, chosen by Jesus himself. John chapter 6, verse 13 reports, and when the day came, he, that's Jesus, called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Luke goes on to identify them by name. Each one. Judas, the son of James, number 11. And last but not least, number 12, Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. The one who would hand him over to the Jews, ending in his crucifixion. How does one who spent two and a half years in the, close, the closest proximity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, become a traitor? Verses 27 to 30 help us to answer that question. Exposing the betrayer and now explaining the betrayer. The influence surrounding Judas enabled him to betray Jesus. In verses 27 to 30, there are four influences that enabled Judas to betray Jesus. Do you see them? Let's start with Satan. Clearly, he's intimately involved in this whole process. And because he's not omniscient, I have a sneaking suspicion that he felt like he's just won the lottery when Judas showed up. Look at the first half of verse 27. After the morsel, 
Satan then entered into him. What does that mean? The culture of the time to take a morsel from the table, a piece of bread, you ripped it off the, the unleavened bread, and you dipped it in this bowl of mixed spices, and it was like mashed potatoes, kind of. Dip it in it and hand it to a person sitting next to you at the table was an expression of the great honor. You're a special guest. We honor you. And then to, for Judas and to be sitting to, and Jesus left, the Apostle John was on Jesus' right. Again, two places of great honor. You see, Jesus loved Judas to the very end. And yet Judas has already put into motion the plan to hand him over to the Jewish leadership before they ever arrived in the upper room. Prior to their arrival, Matthew reports, then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. And yet at the same time, Judas accepts the morsel from the hand of the Son of God and Satan enters him. John doesn't speak of demon possession. But Judas has now surrendered the leadership of his life to Jesus' arch enemy. The one who prowls around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Judas is still completely responsible for all the choices that he has made and will make. He rejected once and for all the one who, having loved his own who were in the world, loved him to the end. The first influence is Satan's leadership. The second influence is Jesus himself. Again in verse 27, Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. What is Jesus doing here? Is he giving permission Is he commissioning him so that the Old Testament scripture would be fulfilled? I was speaking with a friend about this passage of scripture earlier this week, and he has a teenage son. He was facing a big history exam the next day. The son had come to him and asked him to, I'm not sure whether it was to borrow the car or, anyway, he was saying that he was by making this request that he was done studying. My friend said, oh, good, you're ready for exam? He said, yeah, I think so. He said, um, my friend thought, well, I'll just throw out a couple of questions to test him, see how ready he is. Father asked him, when was the Second World War? Hmm, I'm not really sure. 
How long was it? It was short. I, I probably wouldn't say that to a Second World War vet if I were you. It was probably the six longest years of his life. Well, that's what my teacher said. I think you need to do some more studying. Back down to his room he went. A couple hours later, his friend was sprawled out on his bed reading a book, and sure enough, his son was in his room. Dad, I need a break. I think I've got it done. His dad said, he was asking permission to stop studying. Why are you asking me that? You've already decided whether you're going to study anymore. That's what's happening here. Judas has already decided. And Jesus is just resigned and releasing him for Judas to do what he is determined that he is going to do. And he also wants him out of the room. Because Jesus is laser-focused at this point in preparing these disciples, his closest companions, for his imminent departure. What you do, do quickly. Look at verses 28 and 29. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to them, him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. What's happening here? How, how would you describe the disciples' reaction? The third influence is clueless disciples. And I'm not trying to be mean. But they had no idea what was going on. Maybe a nicer way to say it would be to say they're confused or, or perplexed. Reminds me of that old saying. You can fool all of the people some of the time. And some of the people all of the time. But you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. And I would like to add, and God, none of the time. You can certainly fool me. You can fool the elders of TRCC. You may even be able to fool an entire church family. Parents can certainly be fooled. Just keep telling them what you know that they want to hear. You'll be able to fool your kids for a season, maybe even your wife. But trust me, we fool God absolutely none of the time. He knows us better than we know ourselves. The scriptures tell us he has the hairs on our head numbered. He knew the length of our life before we took, took our first, first breath. 
and most importantly, he knows our hearts. Jesus' closest companions, although they had spent two and a half years in an intimate relationship with Judas, had no idea, not even a whiff, that he would be the one who would hand Jesus over. I wonder what went through their minds. In just a few hours, standing in the darkness of the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would approach Jesus, kiss him, and then step back to allow the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees to take him captive. Satan's leadership, Jesus' resignation, the disciples' cluelessness, and finally, the night, darkness. Look at the last phrase of verse 30. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. You have to understand that verses 21 to 30 took place in a time frame quicker than we could read those verses. The twinkling of an eye, Judas was identified by Jesus and left the room out into the darkness. The Apostle John's Gospel makes much use of that contrast between light and darkness, day and night, good and evil. I don't remember having an established curfew in our home growing up. It may have been there, I just, I don't recall it. Um, I do know that they wanted to know where I was going, who I was with, what kinds of activities I was going to be involved in, and when they could expect us home. There was kind of a rule in our home growing up that if you weren't 10 minutes early, you were five minutes late. So whatever time we said we would be home, that rule held. I can also remember my dad always reminding us as we're going out the door, nothing good ever happens after midnight. And that's true. You know it. There are activities that take place under the cover of darkness that would never happen in broad daylight. Jesus is the light of the world, but humanity, we prefer darkness. Why? Turn back with me to John chapter 3. Look at verse 19 of John chapter 3. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does, does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Left to ourselves, humanity will always prefer darkness 
We don't like exposure. And so we suppress the truth in unrighteousness, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. We do not want to be exposed. And then what happens? Well, listen to Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools. And the slide away from God begins deeper and deeper into darkness. In the next 10 verses in Romans chapter 1, Paul reports God's judgment three times with these words, and God gave them over. And God gave them over. And God gave them over. In the echo of those judgments, I hear Jesus' words to Judas in John chapter 13. What you do, do quickly. And where does it all end? Verse 32 of Romans chapter 1 reads, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they do not only they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Folks, look around. Listen to the news. Are you hearing the agenda of our political elites? We live in a world where darkness is preferred. And those who practice such are celebrated. As for Judas, he never saw the light of day again. Crushed by guilt and remorse, he tried to return those 30 pieces of silver he had received for the betrayal of Jesus. Then he went out and took his own life, hung himself, the record is found in Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 to 10. I'll let you read that on your own. I won't take time to read it this morning. But Judas is the perfect reminder of what happens when we pursue our natural preferences for darkness. Sometimes it results in a premature death. But spiritual death, always. Read through the Old Testament book of Judges sometimes with our innate preference for darkness. Humanity always drifts away from God. Allow Jesus to expunge the sin in your life. In just a few moments, Pastor Foster is going to come and lead us in the Lord's Supper. This is an ordinance established by Jesus himself on this very night in the upper room with his disciples. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it 
and gave it to his 11 remaining disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. The bread represented his earthly body, the reality of the incarnation, that he was God dressed in human flesh. And then he took the cup and he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Did you hear that? For the forgiveness of sins. Sin is pervasive. Not only in the sense of Romans 3.23 where all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But pervasive in the sense that you take that drop of food coloring and you put it in a glass of water and it permeates the entire glass of water. Our thinking, our feelings, how we see things and what we hear, our view of the world, our actions and our reactions, all affected by our sinful hearts. But the good news is that God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We can respond appropriately to God's demonstration of our love for us, spelled out in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus as Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, did what the scriptures say he did, and will do what he promised he will do. Believe that with all your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You're prepared to surrender the leadership of your life to Christ's Lordship. That's the beginning. At that point, according to John chapter 1, verse 13, we become children of God. We're reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it means that we're forgiven. John, 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 to 9 reads, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all, right, all unrighteousness. You see, believers still sin. But we, have to come to the, but we have come to the light voluntarily and confessed our sins, repented, and are trusting Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. The cup, it represents his blood of the covenant or the promise, which is poured out for many for the sins, for the forgiveness of sins. The same blood that Jesus cleanses us from all sin, past, 
present and future. You can run, but you can't hide. Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, was exposed and explained. Allow Jesus to expose and expunge the sin in your life. You can run, but you cannot hide. Come to the light. Love the light. Father, your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts than our thoughts. You are the potter, we are the clay. Forgive us for thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. Thank you for the word, both the incarnate word, Jesus, God dressed in human flesh, and the written word, both lamps for our feet, first as the ultimate example, and then as an inspired, infallible, authoritative, sufficient, supernaturally preserved revelation of your person, plans, and purposes. And the words of the psalmist come to mind. What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Thank you for your love. We don't deserve it. We could never earn it. Yet you did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins made possible by the once-for-all-time sacrifice of Jesus, the shedding of his blood. Enable us now by, your by the power of your Spirit and your glory to walk in the light as he himself is in the light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.